Hello and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My guest today is Jeff Smith. And Jeff, it's a great joy to see you. It's so long since we've been together, but I have happy memories of that time, I think in St. Louis, probably. And Mm -hmm. yes, yeah. What I'm thinking about now is putting myself into the Jeff Smith world or trying to. What are you thinking about? What's dynamizing you? What's holding you back? What's worrying you? What's interesting you right now, Prof? Well, I would say probably what's dynamizing me, well, let's start with that, is um, I am a part of the uh, conference committee for the 20th anniversary of Music in the Moving Image, which takes place at, you know, an institution we we both know quite well, NYU, uh, each year. And it has been kind of revelatory uh, to... Uh, be a part of this process and see how different uh, it was since when, say, I was the keynote speaker like about 14 years ago or so. And and among the things that are particularly um, striking to me are that there really are kind of new generation of scholars who have really help to kind of change the field in terms of what people are interested in talking about and in terms of the kind of theoretical frameworks that uh, they are looking at. Um, And in particular, um, the two names which keep coming up again and again um, are uh, Daniela Kulizic-Wilson, whose work was really fundamental to conceptualizing the ways in which sound design and film scoring have gradually merged and become uh, much, much closer together in terms of uh, its aesthetics, uh, particularly. Uh, and her work is is being cited so frequently. Um, it's a wonderful tribute to Daniela because she passed away um, about a, two years ago, I think. And so to see the impact that she's having on the field is is really heartening. And the other name is, uh, you know, a friend of mine from University of Southampton, Kevin Donnelly, his discussion of a kind of spectral presence of music seems to loom very large over this younger generation of scholars who are uh, building upon that for uh, much of their own work. Uh, and then just the directions that uh, we're seeing. This was a conference that for the most part, was really dominated by discussions of music and film. And now the the remit of what people are kind of interested in talking about has expanded so much to incorporate other aspects of screen culture. Uh, I think this is partly due to the specific call this year, but there are a large number of proposals, uh, very good proposals on music in video games. And in... um, digital platforms uh there's a proposal that deals with the um uh the way in which digital archiving uh has become a particularly important aspect of of um uh especially for uh for 
kind of subcultural communities that are da- in danger of kind of disappearing and the kind of precarity that that is associated with that. Um, and uh, additionally, there's obviously a lot of work that's being done now on music and television, and, and that has become a particularly fertile area. So, you know, someone like me who's still primarily working in um, music and film uh, is you know, happy to see how much work uh, is being done in the other areas, because when I attend the conference, I'm just going to learn so much more about something yeah. that I don't really do. <laughs> <laughs> and now, in terms of what's worrying me, yeah, what's worrying you? That's the second oh, part, go ahead. right, Jeff? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, just speaking from a kind of personal perspective, um, the uh, the drift toward kind of neo fascism in the U.S. is is um, and the role of misinformation in kind of what uh is happening in terms of people's kind of political alliances is is particularly troubling um just looking at the results of the Iowa caucus last night were particularly uh bracing uh in the sense that that two thirds of the people who, who voted in the Republican side of the caucus just don't believe that the election was legitimate even though there have been 60 plus court cases in which nobody's been able to to produce any evidence and in which there have been uh, civil suits in which people more or less, once they're put on the stand, were forced to say, yeah, I didn't think anybody was going to believe what I said. You know, it's just kind of crazy that um, just repeating the idea as often as people have done it, it's somehow become like a fundamental core belief for one political party in this country. The other uh, side to it is when people don't seem to care if Donald Trump is convicted of a uh, of a felony charge, that this would be reason to disqualify him from office. Um, we've seen this kind of developing now for several years in the 2020 election when the Republican platform was just, well, we support whatever Donald Trump supports. There was no real policy initiatives. It was just kind of like, you know, a grab bag of what he might be interested in doing in a second term. Um, And that's just the result of a cult of personality. It's nothing less than that. The idea that we trust the person rather than the idea. Um, And the idea of democracy, I think is seriously in, in danger. So yeah, it's it's that's worrying um, because we are basically, you know, uh, a little less than eleven months from election day in the U.S. And and one of the ironies is that the Republican Party can never again claim to be the party of law and order. No way. No, <laughs> you're quite right about that. Um, it's it's always been a kind of very selective. Uh, idea and this even goes back to kind of previous scandals where um you know if you look what happened to anthony weiner he was drummed out of the republican or uh sorry he was drummed out of the new york democratic party very quickly because uh democrats were not willing to tolerate that kind of abuse and and rightly so power yeah yeah Yeah. yes and rightly so for those people who, who don't know the context who was a congressperson and later a mayoral candidate in new york 
who basically went online and sexually exploited minors and also lied extensively to his wife, whose position as a, an aide to Hillary Clinton was also relevant to this. And this guy just lied repeatedly and said he'd gotten over things and wasn't going to do it again and then just did it again and again. But if you're in Trump land, it doesn't matter. No, it just doesn't matter. And this extends even to other people who have have um, uh, have been charged and convicted of crimes, and there's no real desire to um, uh, to do anything. But you think about how long it took for George Santos to kind of <laughs> to, to be, um, you know, because they they privileged votes more than they privileged like the the kind of value of the institution itself and what it means to be representing the citizens and constituents of a And this is another Northeastern congressperson, in this case a Republican, who lied about almost everything, college qualifications, parental mortality, and so on, and also was engaged in all kinds of problematic fundraising and who knows what else. And Yeah, same deal. Well, Prof, let's go back to the first part of your answer, the positive part. Sure. <laughs> now, one of the things you do, I think it's in your second book. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. And I think this mm-hmm. relates to the democratization of the vision of screen music, is that you wanted to emphasize, as I understand it, the unknown industrial labor of Hollywood music making of composition, not the famous white male authors, if it, if you like, the composers that we associate with Hitchcock, say, film noir or whatever, but rather the kind of grunts on the ground doing their stuff. Have I got that right? Um, yes, it's it's a book that has not yet been finished, I have to say. it's um, It was something that was kind of stalled by the pandemic, but it's something that I have already done a fair amount of research um, okay. in yeah. and, uh, and you know, look forward to eventually finishing, uh, hopefully in the next couple of years. But that's, um, you're absolutely right that that takes a very different focus because in some ways it's dealing with the period of Hollywood history in which the almighty composer uh, was was really the exception rather than the rule in terms of the day-to-day operations of how Hollywood film scores were uh, being created. Um, This was uh, something that became a kind of big data approach that... um, that uh, involved looking at cue sheets. I sort of started with the cue sheets from United Artists and in part because it was just, you know, I had to go across the street to basically summon up uh, them them up and look at them because they are uh, housed as uh, part of the collection in United Artists. Um, and, and I was struck by... Um, several things that look to the kind of, you know, uh, what we would think of as, as grunt work of people who are working within a system 
that depends on orchestrators and copyists and um, uh, the musicians themselves who are not credited uh, and uh, and a process which often is a more about kind of it doesn't have to be good it has to be Tuesday you know that 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 uh, delivering product through this process was more important than thinking about kind of the art and aesthetics of, of film music. Um, and there were, was evidence of that already in the, um, the United Artists collection where you see whole films that have been scored by cues that had been recorded and orchestrated and created for other films and just kind of assembled by a music editor. Right. So already we're getting to the, you know, the kind of grain of where somebody who is not a composer um, and, you know, works very much lower in that kind of hierarchy of how music departments function um, is, is the one who's effectively creating the, the uh, score with, through the direction of the producer in this case, because it was something that's David O. Selznick, you know, um, was particularly keen on doing and would do it again throughout um, many of his subsequent uh, uh, productions. Uh, but I thought to myself, you know, well, this is a bit unusual um, because it's mostly made up of independent producers. It just functions as kind of distribution uh, company. And what would happen if I looked, for example, at studio archives and so I was fortunate enough to have a recommendation from someone to say, you know, Paramount has a music archivist. You want to contact her and ask her. And I kind of randomly selected uh, about uh, 150 titles from Paramount Films. And she actually had some existing cue sheets, which she just Xeroxed and said, here, you might find these of help as well. So I got a fairly big data set. And one of the things that was particularly striking was that at Paramount in the 1930s, the um, the composition process was shared amongst a number of different people. Um, and essentially, the um, credit would typically go to um, the music director or um, the head of the department um, rather than individual composers. Uh, and that's in part because nobody had enough, like, you know, um, shall we say, uh, shall we say the majority of music that they could claim, well, you know, even in a kind of arbitration sense that this represents mm -hmm. my work and some other people made mm -hmm. some, it was very evenly distributed. Um, and at Paramount, that meant that Boris Moros, later revealed to be a Soviet spy embedded in Paramount, um, was the guy who was getting the credit for all, all of this. And uh, and so that kind of compositional process was, it was really the team of composers. So people like John Leipold, who are not particularly well known, or Frederick Hollander, who's a little bit better known, but still, you know, he's not, I think, considered one of the great canon the way that Korngold or Steiner is. Um, and then to look at still another um, studio, I also pulled a similar number of cue um, sheets from Warner Brothers. And what you see at Warner Brothers is a trend that ultimately takes hold 
of Hollywood, basically from the 40s onward, uh, which is that you can see them gradually evolving toward a system in which a single composer becomes responsible for all the music that's present in the film. Even as that still has some kind of amazing quirks to the story. But early on, 1933, 34, 35, their cue sheets looked very much like um, what you see at Paramount, where it's individual composers sometimes writing two or three cues, sprinkle in some popular music from you know, Warner Brothers catalog and, um, and boom, the, the project is done. And, and this was a case in which it's not uncommon for, um, for a film, uh, to be scored essentially within a week's time because, um, you know, essentially by spreading out the contributions that are made to that mm. to arrangers who are arranging the popular music to composers who are doing, you know, a couple of cues often sometimes per reel. Um, and, uh, and kind of getting it into the hands of orchestrators so that they can prepare whatever parts are necessary for um, the orchestra to record yeah, something like that was was the kind of thing that um, it could be done in a week. Um, and that was also true, you know, uh, David Raxon, for example, says that was the case for most things at 20th Century Fox, where between him, Cyril Mockridge, and David Budolph, essentially the three of them would co collaborate, and within a week's time, they would have, uh, they would watch the film on Monday, they would have a meeting to sort of decide who does what, you know, if someone was specialized in love themes, you know, they might get that part. If someone was great at action music, they might get that part. Um, and everybody would kind of write their own themes, come back the next morning, play them from one another. Once everybody had agreed on what the themes should be, then it would just essentially get passed off to the orchestrators and, you know, they would compose handoff to orchestrators who would orchestrate handoff to copyists who would copy. And, <laughs> and by Thursday, they're already starting the recording sessions with the idea that Friday you have the, the score essentially completed. I mean, it's quite a process and it's one that gets very, very far from the idea of sort of the great composer. Indeed, um, and and it's a deeply impressive process, labor process, and a deeply impressive explanation of it too. Really, that's amazing, and it reminds me of a couple of things. First of all, the writers' room in contemporary successful television drama, and secondly, because you mentioned the way in which some of the studios would use material to which they had intellectual property rights to the way mm -hmm. which in, I guess, the 90s, probably beginning of the 90s, you start to get credited in cinema guys who've put together a soundtrack that is basically popular music hits of the previous yes. four or five yeah. years, right? Yeah. Which can be interlaced with original composition, but basically you end up watching these films where there are 30 pop songs listed at the end. Yeah. Right? That yeah. have been cleared for reuse. Absolutely. And that's where, you know, in a lot of ways, the um 
the uh, early 30s through, you know, especially at a place like Paramount through the early 40s is not mm -hmm. that different from what we see as a kind yeah. of typical practice today. Right. Right. It's one of the great things about being able to go into um, the archives and see just memos and things that have been written. There's a not terribly well-known Western um called Under the Tonto Rim, which was made in 1933. And the only reason I looked at it was, frankly, I was randomly selecting these titles. And so uh, I was able to see the film um, in uh, at the um, UCLA archives. They had kind of scanned a, a file for me and allowed me to watch it there. But I had also seen not only the cue sheet, but all the kind of additional documentation they had. And one of the ideas is, you know, kind of iconic cowboy scene where um, where the main character is going to be sitting kind of on his fence playing uh, a song on his harmonica. And there are these kind of spotting notes with ideas about, well, what should we have him play? Um, well, and the initial proposal was to have him play isn't it romantic, which was popularized in, <laughs> in 1932. Da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now they didn't end up going with it. <laughs> they end up going with something from the cowboy songbook, Red River Valley. You know, it's a much more genre uh, appropriate sort of title, but mm. just the idea that they would resituate, isn't it romantic in this yeah you know, a Western about a lowly pig farmer. I know. Uh, just like, I think of it yeah, as this tells you something about IP. I think of it as Ginger and Fred, wrongly or rightly, I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> so it's it's so, actually uh, uh, Maurice Chevalier. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. I guess that's uh, the yeah. option. Yeah. Nazi sympathizer avant la lettre. But <laughs> I, I wrongly, Jeff, said that was your second book. I'd read about it. As a as a current project, yes. I guess. So my apologies for misleading. It is a current project. Listen, yeah. but what I I thought was your third book, but is actually I think your second, is about Reds like you and me. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, Hollywood. <laughs> it is. By that which, is my that is my second book. Yeah. By which I don't mean Soviet sympathizers, which I am not, and you are not. But this is a terrific study of something that's been, in a sense, well-trodden, which is the effect of the blacklist on leftists in Hollywood, but you had a different angle. Could you tell us a bit about that, please? And I should say, I live in a country where you can still go to some cities and find emblazoned recently on walls death to reds. Well... And, you know, it's one of the big, big um, things that still permeates uh, American politics. It wasn't that long ago where Michelle, I'm blanking on her last name, um, who's a congressperson from Minnesota, where she was suggesting that we should renew essentially the HUAC investigations, that people should be, you know, queried about whether or not. This is the House on American Activities Committee which uh, involving people like Bobby Kennedy uh, interrogated yeah. people for their leftist 
sympathies and where you saw things like loyalty oaths being required. Uh, you saw leftists kicked out of things like the University of California system and others, so on. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, isn't that um, long ago that I think, uh, you know, uh, there were still uh, private universities that uh, would ask for you to sign like a loyalty oath, you know, essentially kind of policing individual politics that way. I remember applying for a job I never got at Chapman University, but they insisted to consider my application and to sign a loyalty oath. Well, when I uh, signed on at NYU, New York University, in 1993, I had to sign a document saying that I would not preach sedition. (laughs) (laughs) And very interesting because, um, you know, it's it's essentially become you know an acceptable form of of political discourse. I, I take it based on what we're seeing in in the you know uh, discussions of everything that went on behind the scenes with the uh, uh, January sixth uh, committee hearings and those investigations, which are still ongoing at kind of state level. Well, you know, it's okay for some people to preach sedition, but not others. So your book comes out in, I think, 2014. Have I got that right? Yes, it does. Yeah. Can you, you, uh, as no doubt a kind of ludicrous Moscow line Soviet sympathizer, lay out for us? (laughs) (laughs) What you uncovered, what, what you were trying to say and what you found out. Yes, um, the the book was an attempt to build upon a kind of longstanding interest I had had in the uh, Hollywood blacklist, uh, dating back to um, my days as a graduate student, and so it was kind of returned to something that I was um, uh, had already uh, a fair amount of knowledge about and mm-hmm. had done a study of Dalton Trumbo, particularly as a, a blacklisted screenwriter who had managed to uh, remain very active working with fronts and, and of course operating under pseudonyms and, and how his own, you know, almost um, Disserto-esque uh, uh, wigging of the process <laughs> uh, was something that really helped to kind of entirely undermine the logic of the blacklist. And so I wanted to return to that. I kind of come back to it in uh, a chapter I do on historical allegories where I uh, discuss um, Spartacus as uh, a film that um, because of Trumbo's participation um, could be seen as a kind of historical allegories in which the, uh, you know, the persecuted Romans essentially stand in for um, members of the Communist Party. And there was not like you had to take a big leap because Howard Fast had been, um, as the author of the novel, had been hauled before HUAC and asked to um, answer their questions. Uh, Albert Maltz took a first stab at the screenplay, and he was among the Hollywood Ten. Trumbo finally gets a hold of it and produces it. So almost everybody who is crafting the narrative yeah. of the 
you know, the screenplay for uh, Spartacus has some kind of attachment to the um, the Communist Party in America uh, during that very crucial period, and um, and that gave me sort of the idea of you know because you're right that there's no shortage of scholarship on um, on either Hollywood during the Cold War period or you know about the blacklist quite specifically. Uh, and so I thought, well, if I'm going to make any kind of original contribution to it, I think it would be interesting to look at how films have been interpreted against the backdrop of uh, the HUAC investigations and McCarthyism, McCarthyism as kind of a tandem effort to police um, people who were members of the Communist Party uh, during the late 40s and throughout the 1950s. And and so I decided to look at uh, that aspect of film interpretation through two lenses, dealing with scholarship, with Tom Doherty doing um, uh, some really uh, important early work on this topic of Hollywood agitprop. In other words, thinking about films that have been made uh, uh, after the uh, conclusion of the uh, first HUAC hearings in 1947, and films like The Iron Curtain, I Was a Communist for the FBI, uh, the, um, uh, the My Son John, uh, uh, there are a number of spy films that um, also were produced in which communists are the bad guys, including a rather interesting film formally called thief in which it contains no dialogue. The story is told entirely through sound effects uh, mm. and music uh, starring Ray Milland. Um, so there are a whole bunch of these films that all kind of clustered, uh, especially in 1952 where about 13 of them were produced and across a number of different genres. Um, and that became a kind of corpus because there are about 60 titles in all that were made between 48 and 55 that um, were, you know, actively uh, dealing with red agents as kind of prototypical villains in all kinds of films. Um, and so I tried to look at those films um, not only for uh, the sense in which they are in some ways, simply reworking existing film conventions, uh, particularly those of the crime film, the gangster film, in which you just kind of plug in, you know, Reds as bad guys. Uh, um, Pick Up on South Street is a kind of, I love that film, the, the Fuller yeah. film. It's a perfect example of this. Um, where interestingly, you know, one of the quirks about its foreign distribution is that I believe in France, the, the, um, the film was um, was dubbed such that when the characters talk about the kind of MacGuffin, it isn't microfilm that they're worried about. It's heroin because they didn't want to do anything that would badmouth the French Communist Party. So that was a kind of change that uh, that 20th Century Fox was willing to make just to make it fit the kind of concerns of the local market. And there are all kinds of like little weird stories about that because. 
uh, even as the idea was that these films would play well in the U.S., uh, any other country in the world which had an active communist party would sometimes point to diplomatic, you know, uh, relations that they would have and say, no, we will not distribute this film. If, if basically this was the case with I was a communist in uh, for the FBI, where, um, as I recall, Australia uh, initially uh, put up resistance because the uh, sort of left-leaning parties were saying, we have an agreement about kind of, um, you know, sort of slander against a nation's uh, particular politics. And we are, you know, invoking that as a way of saying that the film will not play in Australian territories. It eventually did play because, you know, uh, uh, a new uh, election took place and the new new party became conservative and they suddenly sort of dropped the kind of censorship angle on it and, and played it. But, um, but just the idea that, that these films would cause, you know, problems around the globe was, was something that I was uh, particularly interested in. But the other aspect of this was, you know, and some of the ways in which um, these uh, conventions are simply adapted to this um, this new theme of communism as a kind of threat to the American way of life. Um, often these films ended up kind of reappropriating uh, existing uh, iconography and also kind of characterizations from things like film noir of the period. Mm-hmm. So um, you have some, uh, you know, pretty interesting uh, film noirs made that are kind of explicitly anti-communist. Uh, Pick Up on South Street is one of them, but another is um, I Married a Communist, which went through a couple of different titles, a couple of releases. It also gets released under the name of the woman on pure 13. And what's particularly interesting is the way in which the, the female agent um, in the communist party is uh, configured as a kind of prototypical femme fatale, someone whose seductiveness is so strong that, you know, good red-blooded American men cannot control their libidos and end up joining the party just to, <laughs> and, um We need about a hundred million of such women now yeah. <laughs> in this pathetic this male was, fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> and this was true not only of um, I Married a Communist, which mm. uh is particularly, I think, effective example of how it functions. But there's also a much more laughable version of it in um, uh, a film made by Republic Pictures that was personally overseen by Herbert Yates uh, called The Red Menace. Um, And The Red Menace, uh, if you look at the screenplay for it, there's uh, an attractive young lass by the name of Molly, who is of Irish descent, um, who uh, was a particular concern for the PCA, because you look at the files at the PCA, and one of the things that they said, well, we must make it absolutely clear in the film that Molly is not trading sexual favors for membership in the Communist Party. 
Uh, and in fact, when you look at the cast of characters on the first page of the screenplay, the description of Molly initially is just two words, man bait. And so it's very clear that whoever devised the character exactly uh, intended to communicate the idea that, that this is how she was uh, able to convince uh, men to join the party is by trading sexual favors. And, and the, the of PCA, course, this... the, sorry, Jeff, if I may interrupt the PCA to which you refer sure. is a code or a group of sensors within the industry dedicated to beating off attempts at governmental regulation through self-regulation by Hollywood. Because at this time, from partway into the First World War until the, the early 50s, motion pictures were not protected under the First Amendment. The Supreme Court held that they did not constitute speech. And there were many pressures from the League of Catholic Women Voters and others, to see federal government censorship. So there was this attempt, very successful for a while, and technically still going until the 60s, I think, Jeff, to censor things like yes. racial sex, drug use, wicked people, in inverted commas, succeeding, and so on. Yeah. Yes, um, this was the function of the uh, PCA acronym for the Production Code Administration was precisely to uh, provide a kind of standardization of content to the extent that um, it wouldn't raise uh, complaints that would uh, ultimately lead to some uh, external regulation. Self-regulation was the norm in Hollywood for couple of decades you know several decades um it's still interesting though looking at some of these uh these particular cases that state censorship boards you know they don't get as much attention but they were still active and you can yes. see records mm -hmm. of cuts being made there is a particularly brutal murder that takes place in i married a communist where a guy is just carried to the end of a dock he his legs are tied his arms are tied and he is just dropped into the water and left to drown um and that that scene was in a couple of states either uh shortened uh to kind of lessen its impact or um uh or was excised entirely so it's one of these things that it became sort of a tolerable level of trouble, shall we say, that studios were willing to kind of occasionally tailor these films to local censorship boards um, while still maintaining that aura of self-regulation. So it was a way of keeping uh, even state censorship boards very much at arm's length and very, very successful at it. Yeah. So one of the other things that particularly interested me about uh, looking at this group of propaganda films was that they often borrowed from um, the kind of conventions and language of social problem films, um, and particularly with regard to how they dealt with uh, issues of race. And that was one of those things that um, the link between the um, – American Communist Party and uh, even early sorts of civil rights activism, like um, the kind of uh, 
protests on behalf of the Scottsboro Boys. Um, that was uh, something which was, I think, widely understood as an aspect of how the Communist Party was had hoped uh, that they might be able to uh, uh, create uh, a lot of new members is by taking stances which they believed would resonate with um, with uh, with black citizens in the U.S. Uh, who were existing under Jim Crow, or just dealing with the kinds of racial prejudice which existed in uh, northern cities, um, and uh, and so one of the things that you see in a lot of these films is a more sympathetic portrait of uh black americans uh than i think you often get in a lot of other um films made during this period where the characters typically don't even have the uh don't have lines of dialogue they're just kind of background figures they're uh often menials um and in some cases this became sort of part of the plot uh in the red menace for example there's a a newspaper writer for the um, communist newspaper um, and who uh, is basically wooed back to, um, or I should say more wooed away from the communist party by a visit from his father who uh, basically invokes the kind of lessons of Christianity and the, you know, uh, the faith of the black church that the young man had grown up in. Um, and there is certainly cause uh, for him to leave. Uh, one of the things that's a kind of subplot of the film is a Jewish poet uh, takes a position, which is out of keeping with, um, with a communist dogma about the nature of the dialectic and he's basically blacklisted uh, where he can't find work he can't find and he's driven to suicide and that event along with the visit of the father who is described as uh, a good man with old-fashioned horse sense sort of woos this uh, character back home and in, in implicitly uh, out of the communist party so it struck me as particularly interesting and there's actually, you know, was some, you know, reception to that effect, particularly in um, British film culture uh, where you can find uh, kind of think pieces, which talk about the depiction of uh, African-American characters in uh, anti-communist films of the early 1950s. And so in some ways I was able to extrapolate from, something which was already a part of the discourse in British film culture, who they're seeing many of these Hollywood films just as Americans are. And just to give so, some context, and, the, the Scottsboro Boys were a group of African Amer young African-American men in the 30s in Alabama who were accused and tried for the rape of white women in what is, I guess, a classic case of the injustice of U.S. legal history. Uh, and it became a, a very celebrated moment. And it's one of those moments when, for all the horrors of state socialism and Sovietism, the Communist Party was probably on the right side of history. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, and it's interesting that a couple decades later, um, 
that uh, MGM actually makes a very splashy courtroom drama that is a kind of thinly veiled um, version of the Scottsboro story where a young Mexican man is accused of the rape and murder of a white woman. Um, and he ends up being represented at trial by um, uh, a two lawyers, one of whom is a lawyer who's been hired by the communist party. And the twist in the story basically is that the, Communist Party lawyer wants to see uh, that this young Mexican man is convicted because then he will be a martyr to the cause. So he's willing to sacrifice the individual. And this was this was building upon some of the discourse that had circulated about uh, communist lawyers' involvements in the Scottsboro. That it was just you know pure disinformation, but uh, it's amazing that it gets reworked into a kind of narrative context in in this um, very expensive Oscar nominated Hollywood film. So. And Jeff, we've got about ten minutes left. So in that time, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions, further questions, but also then throw to you so that you have the opportunity to subtract from or add to what we've already discussed. Yeah. Yeah, sure. My first question is when is this new book going to be finished? You said a couple of of years. We want it. We want it to. Well, I, I will say that part of the reason why it got put on the back burner is that, uh, I was on sabbatical during the uh, pandemic and all of the major research facilities that I was going to need to visit closed down. So basically I was like, well, what am I going to do instead? So I had another project that I was interested in doing and had already given a couple of uh, conference papers um, based upon uh, that. So I was kind of gradually building uh, some work. Uh, and that's a project which uh, deals with, um, shall we say, the science of wrongology, as it's kind of somewhat popularly known, uh, where the book is about the way in which uh, the study of cognitive biases and heuristics uh, is something that filmmakers have exploited either as an aspect of narrative uh, in terms of characters who kind of suffer from a degree of irrational thought that can be the source of comedy or the source of, you know, narrative drama. Uh, and the um, can also be something which is used to, uh, uh, to nudge spectators to make kind of false inferences. So, um, and I'm happy to say that that book is actually finished in, in manuscript form. So I have like 400 pages. I'm looking, I've already spoken with, um, a couple of press editors about, uh, sending it out for review. So, that's likely to be the next book simply because what was I going to be able to do for this year? I was on sabbatical and it was that, you know, so. Um, okay. Uh, my interrogation is concluded. <laughs> <laughs> so I will, I can mention a couple of things that, um, that uh, I think the book offers is um, 
you know, some of these are, are particularly pertinent to what we were talking about earlier about kind of political discourse, because yeah. um, there are a lot of uh, studies by uh, psychologists, behavioral e- economists um, who note uh, that uh, things like confirmation bias can be a very difficult hurdle. Uh, that tendency to basically form a hypothesis, all the information that comes in that confirms it, you accept anything that seems to be disconfirmatory evidence, you kind of rationalize around it to preserve what your original hypothesis is. And so, you know, uh, spoiler alert for some of you <laughs> out there. <laughs> <laughs> but um it's it's something which i see uh in as an important aspect of deceptive narration for um for uh uh some iconic hollywood films psycho arguably being the most uh apparent where we're given the kind of solution to the mystery midway through uh where the sheriff says you know, Mrs. Bates has been buried in Green Lawn Cemetery for the past 10 years. His wife even chimes in, I help dress periwinkle blue. So, and the amazing thing is that everybody just skates right over that. Why? Mm. Because we've already seen, albeit from a distance and through a curtained window and, <laughs> and if the shadow of uh, Mrs. Bates is uh, at a couple of points in the film. Um, no, clearly Mrs. Bates exists. So uh, we ignore the disconfirmatory evidence and preserve that hypothesis that um, that uh, she's alive and and murderous and lethal. And and that's a kind of classic case of confirmation bias. Um, that the kind of especially I've been coached by some um, uh, psychologist psychologists to you know, not perhaps talk about this in, in terms of a full certainty uh, and really take a more Bayesian approach to how uh, inference and judgment works. So it's one of these cases where when we get that information from the sheriff, we should be recalculating the probabilities about, you know, Mrs. Bates being the killer, but we don't, you know, we just kind of uh, continue on preserving what whatever existing belief about the likelihood is um, that she's the the killer in the film um and i have other chapters that deal with things like anchoring effects where which is a very useful concept i think for understanding uh how anti-heroes uh work in the cinema and in television and in fact i draw a quite uh quite a lot from the work of marie smith um who's addressed this question uh, with respect to uh, character engagement uh, and also Margreta Brunvago, who talks about the anti-hero in television um, where, you know, a lot of films have a morally graduated structure where we can still identify someone who does really bad things as long as there's someone who does worse things in the film. And you think mm-hmm. like Henry Hill in Goodfellas, well, compared to Tommy, <laughs> he's a, um, he's a more morally upstanding character. Um, and anchoring is the kind of psychological effect where typically um, we kind of are anchored by whatever the high value is and the low value and tend to gravitate in estimates toward um 
And often these are things that are quantified. Uh, and someone might object to say, well, but, you know, people are talking about estimates of like the number of African countries and things like that. And yeah, that's true. Um, or they're talking about like real estate estimates. And that's a perfect case as well, where whatever the initial offer is functions as a kind of anchor for a subsequent negotiations. But judges do this as well. I mean, there was a study about German judges where uh, the re recommendations by prosecutors for sentencing guidelines functioned as a kind of anchor. And implicitly, there's a moral judgment there um, if you're saying that what someone did is worth 10 years in prison versus three years in prison. So I do think that there are aspects of this which suggest anchoring um, does affect the way that we judge aspects of uh, characters in terms of their their kind of moral orientation uh, and whether they're worthy of our, our sympathy or apathy. Uh, I also have a chapter on uh, attribution error, which is one of those things that um, we tend to be pretty harsh in our judgments about other people when they do something and excuse our own foibles when we do it, you know. So uh, the <laughs> the uh, effect of this a kind of uh when it comes to understanding characters and their actions in cinema is that um uh is that attribution error is typically associated with the idea that people behave on correspondence with their underlying dis dispositions rather than the particular context and constraints that they might uh operate under and so uh there are a lot of films which use that uh, as a way of kind of manipulating spectators' judgments, precisely because if our default is to see this as just part of the ethos of the character, part of their moral compass, then we will tend to ignore, um, you know, what eventually by the end of the film becomes a very richly detailed sort of scenario in which we do understand their actions within specific kind of constraints and uh, uh, situations. Um, and so I have a chapter that kind of looks at, uh, at that, you know, sources of our own errors in judgment simply because, uh, as I like to say, um, we don't know what we don't know. Prof, you've given us a great answer to both what's going to go on with the book that I'm anxious to see. And the book that you've just, you've more or less completed, which I'm also anxious to see. My other question was going to be about The Sounds of Commerce, which is your first book. It's mm -hmm. 25 years old. It had a big influence on me. And I'm wondering if you could explain to listeners what you were getting at in that work. Yes. In The Sounds of Commerce, um, this was a, a book in which I tried to trace the rise of a particular type of commodity form, which had existed in basically since the 1930s, but not really with a particularly strong market for it, which was the rise of the soundtrack album. Uh, many of the early uh, 
albums that were released that featured music from films were often simply described as music from rather than original soundtracks. But by the late 1950s, the nomenclature had changed and the nomenclature was already a kind of reflection of the fact that studios were recognizing the importance of recorded music as a particular untapped ancillary stream that they could take advantage of. And so one of the things that that kind of led uh, to the rise of the soundtrack as a kind of uh, arena for cross-promoting films, but also as a source of ancillary revenue was the fact that between 1957 and 1958, uh, there were five studios that all basically created their own record labels, starting more or less from scratch or by purchasing existing uh, business concerns. And in that, they joined two other companies, Universal, which had merged with Decca Records in 1952, and MGM, which had established its own record label in the 1940s, and partly because they wanted to kind of monetize all of those songs that they were appearing in those great MGM musicals. And so this was a situation in which the studios are making pretty serious investments in recorded music as a potential marketplace that would complement their other major um, uh, source of revenue from the music from their films, which was publishing and which um, all of the studios had kind of invested in their own publishing companies uh, starting in the late twenties and continuing throughout the, the 1930s. Um, and so it was um, a way of looking at not only how the soundtrack album uh, fit within a kind of larger market uh, that saw um, the uh, the sales of albums grow exponentially from the mid-1950s to the 1970s, uh, and to continue that uh, well into the kind of era of modern Hollywood, which I have to say, you know, the it's 25 years old, but the book was published exactly at the right time, because 1998, we now see, was absolutely the peak of marketing soundtracks to the American public in the form of albums, uh, where I think 38 of them had gone gold in that year. They've never not duplicated that that number ever since. And you had, of course, a huge, huge success in Titanic, which at the time uh, set records for... Huge. Uh, well, ar- around that time, Prof... I remember buying maybe a four CD set from the Donna Reed show that was meant to be <laughs> music for sophisticated dinner parties. <laughs> but, uh, we, we need to come to a conclusion, but I want to give you the opportunity, should you so wish, as I mentioned earlier, to add some things or subtract some things from what we've covered. Uh, I guess the only thing I would add is that, uh, you know, the book on, um, on, uh, music in film, the, the sounds of commerce, that book also featured case studies, which also tried to show how 
the characteristics of the film score changed in many ways as a kind of way of adapting to the particular form of the album uh, in its most popular incarnation as, you know, a kind of collection of 10 to 12 discrete tr- tracks. Uh, and that that process itself in terms of uh, how it affected the way that source music appeared in films and how it appeared and source music, of course, being the kind of thing that you hear as part of the world of the characters. So something that's played in a nightclub or, you know, comes from a uh, radio, um, but also then the kind of interest in uh, developing new types of orchestration and timbres that were, in, you know, inflected by jazz rhythm and blues um uh, as well as uh, you know, surf rock in the case of Ennio Morricone. So, you know, it's a case of the form in some ways following the, the market uh, as the most successful composers in the soundtrack market. In many cases, they were the most successful of the 1960s and 70s as well. And particularly because they were able to adapt their work to kind of new commodity form which didn't exist uh in quite the same way in the classic studio era so i think i'll I'll leave it at that lovely thank you boss that helps me to think through why john barry one of our favorite composers i think i can say Mm -hmm. yes yeah um is such a cold war figure yes yeah why in a sense the great soundtracks are all of the cold war be they espionage related or not and he yeah. doesn't return to Bond after the Cold War before he dies. Yeah. Yeah. There's a particular world that is John Barry that lasts a quarter of a century. Yeah. Where he's yeah. A, an absolute master. And then yeah. it ends. Anyway, sorry, but those are my words, not yours, Prof. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I would agree with you. I mean, it's it's funny how um how distinctive his style was as well. I remember um, watching, uh, uh, I think the film was called Enigma. It was kind of like about the Enigma machine. It was done long before the imitation game. And I remember sitting in the theater thinking, God, I should have checked who was writing this music. I think it's John Barry. And when they finally brought the credits up at the end, I was like, yep, I was right. John Barry, he is <laughs> he's pretty, someone who's... You know, it's pretty much unmistakable even though it has debts in all sorts of areas, including surf rock that you mentioned. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. But you know when you're in a John Barry-scored film, I think, and yeah, you're an expert in do. this and I'm not. Well, Jeff, thank <laughs> you so much. Every time I speak to you, which I've done a lot but not in the recent past, every time I read your work, I learn an enormous amount. You've been incredibly generous in giving us secrets from your unpublished as well as published work. And I thank you very much. Yep. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. It was great to to touch base again.